Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Welcome back to Turpentine VC. Today's episode is about Benchmark, a storied firm that operates in many ways very differently from firms we've interviewed in the past on this show. If you head to Benchmark's website, you'll see that it's incredibly minimalistic with just one homepage, a couple of office addresses, and a link to a Twitter list of their portfolio companies. This is, of course, by design. One of their core beliefs is that platform teams exist to help the general partners, not to actually provide leverage to the founders. On today's episode, we'll dive deep into this topic, among others that are central to Benchmark's belief in firm building. We filmed this episode with Sarah and Eric at Benchmark's office in San Francisco. If you like what you hear, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Without further ado, here's my interview with the Benchmark team. Uh, Sarah, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So we're here today to announce some big news, benchmark growth, seed, accelerator, (laughs) debt, credit. (laughs) You guys have been holding back for 20 years. But this is a moment for us to talk about (laughs) it. And and the investment banking division, yeah, yeah wealth management. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we're actually going public. <laughs> this is the when, next and step. international. Yeah. <laughs> what took you guys so long? Yeah. You know, when other people are what's zigging, we're zagging. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, people are consolidating. Yeah. And now it's time to go big. <laughs> um, speaking of, in this podcast, we've been covering the, the history of venture capital, looking through a few different firms: Sequoia, uh, Kleiner, Andreessen, B- Benchmark. When you think of benchmark in the context of, of venture capital, in the context of the history of venture capital, where does it where does it fit? Like, how, how do you think about kind of the era in which benchmark came in relative to the era in which other firms came in? It's the history is super interesting because, and I think it's actually reflected in the culture of various firms. If you if you think about it, a lot of the original venture capital was when semiconductors were huge and like there was a lot of innovation happening there at the very foundational level so if you think of sequoia for example it's a that's a semiconductor era firm um founded in the 70s benchmark is distinctly an internet era firm founded in 1995 and then you could kind of fast forward and andreessen's like a i guess mobile era firm you know founded in whatever 2009 or 2010 mm-hmm. or whatever and um and so they're they're all they're all kind of reflective of that, um, of those eras in terms of, you know, you, you can kind of think of like, what did it take to be really successful in those businesses? And to be really successful in, in a semiconductor business, you need to be very operationally rigorous and you need to like watch every penny and you need to be extremely financially oriented. And to be successful, I think in the internet era, um, it, it was a lot more forgiving that way. Like financially, it's a lot more forgiving. Um, and so you had a lot more flexibility to let founders dream maybe. And um, and you don't have to watch every penny, but you do have to like hyper-focus on growth. But, you know, it's a 1995 era firm. So we're coming up on 30 years. Um, and, and I think a lot of those attributes still yeah. exist today. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, I might add a couple other attributes that you just make me think of, which is like firms, even, you know, you see this in startups, like you set the bones of a company so early on, the culture, the orientation, and then even when it starts as a couple people and it expands to thousands, you still see that early DNA and it's very true. And then I also think about the year, the vintage that a firm has started, right? Like Benchmark was started, internet era, but before it was the beginning, like where it mm -hmm. really expanded. And then, you know, the firm was started then as if you are thinking about that early stage founder who is going to be going on a decade long journey, what's the firm that you would design from that person's perspective of bringing on a partner and work backwards from there? And then when the craziness happened of, you know, the internet bubble and, and after that benchmark expanded, as many do during times like those types of bull runs, and then, you know, then kind of realized, came back to the knitting. And I think about some of the more recent firms too, where the firm that starts today, it's going to be very different than the firm that was started 10 years ago and very different than the firm that was started 25 years ago, just because of the capital environment too. And so it'll be interesting to reflect on that 10 years from now and see see what's emerged. Yeah. Some firms that have um, aggregated a ton of capital over the last decade, it'll be interesting to see if they too sort of consolidate or narrow or if they just keep you know, going to the go to the moon. But you guys have transitioned very well to next eras. When you look at the most iconic mobile companies, people think what Uber, Snap, Instagram, yeah. uh, Tinder. Um, I'm sure there are others that you guys have done. So, what do you think about is like the benchmark DNA that has enabled you to to succeed in in multiple eras? I mean, when I think about there's there's a couple things that come to mind for me. Like, you know, of course, there's just the endless curiosity and and that we I think we all try to nurture in each other, and we have habits as a firm that are ingrained in our culture that are all about nurturing that curiosity and just not not constraining it in any way. Like our Monday meetings, as an example, there's no agenda. It's not like this is the time to talk about new projects. This is the time to talk about existing portfolio. It's just this open-ended thing that lets us, you know, start the strangest conversations sometimes, but are all about pulling the thread of someone's curiosity, expanding it and see where see where that goes. And then the second thing that I really think about is just that the joy that we all feel partnering with founders and there is there's nothing like that work you know i i met with a founder the other day and he's like oh you must be so exhausted you're just hearing pitches all day and i was like that is not my experience at all that's not our experience at all like every time we talk to a founder it's just the delight in hearing the future that they see and imagining together like how that journey is going to look. And I think we all feel that joy. And then it really manifests in the type of partnership that we want to have with the founders we work with, which is like each of us making one or two investments really a year and having the deep commitment when we do partner of what that work looks like and doing the shoulder-to-shoulder stuff of recruiting, of company building, and being really enmeshed in that in that like whole organization so that we can be the best partner to the founder. I think that's one of the biggest things that you feel 
at least in our partnership meeting, when we're talking about company building and the companies that we work with and the founders that we want to partner with, is that that joy and delight in that partnership. What makes Benchmark Benchmark is the the five equal partners are, are now six. Now six. Now six. six. As of like a month ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which yeah. we'll talk about. No platform team and just consistent fund sizes and focus, you know, fund after fund um, at a time where lots of other firms have aggregated, you know, lot, lots more capital, lots more practices um, or firm products. You guys had a stint where, where you uh, sort of went, went bigger. Talk about what, what you learned from that. And it, do you think that that just wasn't the right fit for you or what the firm learned from that? Because I'm curious, given all the opportunities, even, you know, your success ha- has enabled you, what would uh, need to change in order for you guys to say, hey, actually, we should do something a little bit different, even though we've been doing the same thing for, for such a long time? I think we, we're always asking that question, actually, is, um, and we think of every new partner as an opportunity to refound the firm. Um, and we think of it as a refounding of benchmark. Every every new partner is an opportunity to do that. Um, and so I, I think, you know, you always have to be questioning your assumptions and are you doing the right thing and, and everything else. The expansion of benchmark that had happened in the early OOs was well, well before Sarah I were there. And even the expansion and contraction happened before. But if you talk to the founders, you know, it kind of makes sense. Like, the, the firm was founded on this idea of an equal partnership, which is like, it, it was, you know, originally five, they came in, a dollar comes in, they split it five ways, doesn't matter who has the board seat, everyone owns the management company equally, yeah. everyone, um, you know, has equal economics. There's a lot of good things with that. Um, it, it gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of who you can bring on because you're cutting someone in equally in economics. And, and so it's lucrative to the unproven venture capitalist. Um, it kind of eliminates internal politics because you're not jockeying for additional economics or more control or whatever, or trying to get your deal through because everyone has um, equal skin in the game, so to speak. It's you know, five, six people like, okay, you can have a lot of, a lot of trust and affection for a few people and you can work together really well. But if you have, you can't have 15 equal partners, like, you know, humans need management at some level of scale. And so it just, it doesn't scale. Like it's just the reality of it. And I think one of the things that happened in the expansion is that just kind of showed um, which is like, hey, we're, you know, the founders would say they were spending a bunch of time on stuff they like expressly did not want to do, which was managing a firm. We spend mm-hmm. almost no energy managing the firm. We like literally spend no energy it's, managing it's the firm. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's horrific uh, yeah. how poor we are at managing the firm, actually, because we're spending 100% of our time, you know, with entrepreneurs looking for the next great company, working with the companies that we are already working committed to. And that's where all our time goes. We spend almost no time fundraising, like literally no time fundraising. And so like a lot of these other um, aspects of the job, we just don't spend any time on. And um, and so I think that's one of the advantages, but it also is, it has an express constraint, which is yeah. it doesn't scale particularly well. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. 
In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. And is it fair to say that the firm, the best firms that are scaling um, venture, that they might make more cash, but they will just make um, lower multiples? How do you think about like the trade-offs? I don't know. I haven't really thought about their business model that much, to be honest with you. I think uh, I think they have put in structures in place that um, are probably more hierarchical that allow like that mo- look more like companies yeah. um, than they do like firms, um, and that they're hierarchical and they're CEOs and they're managing partners and they're people who have decision making authority and what and whatnot, which is which is great. Like you know, I think it takes all kinds, um, but it's it's definitely different. We would utterly fail at that um, and not well equipped to do that. And I'd say certainly like our aspiration is to set the high watermark on multiples. Benchmark has a history of having done that. We wake up every day paranoid that we're going to, how do we out hustle, out work, whoever it is that we need to do so that we can be there in front of the founder who's going to build that next iconic company. And that's, I think, the paranoia we wake up with every day is making sure that we're going to be in the room. Yeah. It seems like the flood of capital in the past decade is challenging for your strategy because prices go up, these undisciplined firms perhaps. And so um, for the same deals, you either don't do it because the price comes up or you just have to pay uh, a higher price. Feel free to, how would you respond to that characterization or how do you guys think about macro as it affects your, your business? I worry about that a lot less, actually. It's kind of interesting. Sure, there's inflation. Like, yeah. inflation's real. Our initial check size, I'm sure, has gone up um, and, and so forth. But the reality is outcomes have gotten bigger. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, from a multiple perspective, I don't, I don't know that it is as constraining as it might seem on the surface to do that. I think we can still generate, you know, 20, 50, 100x um, outcomes for our investors and and. Um, and have those runaway companies. The key is being with the runaway companies. Yeah, I think one of the the really special things that makes Benchmark Benchmark is that the level of commitment that we have to have internally in our own minds to to work with a company. We were talking about a company this week, actually, literally this week. That's like very exciting and a really great entrepreneur in a cool space but maybe a space that we know less about. One of our partners, Miles, is just like, you know, if we were in a place where we would do a participatory check, yeah. like this would be one <laughs> that we, but, but we don't do that. Yeah. And so because we don't do that, you know, if there is a company, the commitment required, forget about the money, but just like mentally, you're kind of saying like, I'm gonna work on this for the next decade. Yeah. And I wanna work with this person for the next decade and like really work with them. And it's going to be one of the, I don't know, 15 shots I take over a course of a decade. Yeah. Like that's a pretty like reasonably high standard that you're holding yourself to in terms of the conviction mm-hmm. um, that is required. And so I think that's where it, 
it like it kind of manifests. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's you two. It's it's Chathan. It's it's Miles. It's Peter. Yes. And it's your newest partner, Victor. 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 Um, and this is the third era of, of Benchmark. Talk about the other two eras and how this era compares. So I'd say like, how does it compare is maybe I'll work backwards is, I think it's startlingly similar. Yeah. Um, it's a small group of people who like each other and like to work together and call each other and talk to each other often. Um, we have a very like pass the ball mentality. So, you know, Sarah sees a company that she thinks is interesting while she starts to do work on it, she's very likely to pass it to another partner to meet and and engage with um, and start pulling up questions and diligence and everything else. It's a very kind of collaborative culture uh, that way. The group has a lot of fun together. And I think the esprit de corps of that yields better outcomes. Like just, you know, you're you're talking about how to help someone, help an entrepreneur like work through something. And then you're kind of pulling on all these stories continuously. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the history of, of the firm is kind of interesting because the founders, to me, the biggest leap that the founders made wasn't founding it equally, which I, I think you can say like founding a firm as equal partners was like, how do you cut it up? Okay, like great. But they had tremendous success right out of the gates with Benchmark One with eBay and Ariba. and and Ariba um and and many others and the big leap i think was the first next partner that they hired and bringing that person in so they had built all this brand equity they had built um had generated returns they had done the initial lp raise which wasn't easy actually for uh, for benchmark it wasn't hard but it wasn't easy and then they brought that next person in as an equal partner. And that, to me, was the moment that kind of set the tradition um, for the go forward. And it's something that everyone here is always super conscious of, even when you're bringing on a brand new person. When I came on, I had no investing experience, like zero, literally none. And, you know, Victor, who who just came on, was the CEO of um, a company, Wildlife Studios, a gaming company that he scaled from zero to hundreds of millions of revenue, and he has zero investing experience, right? And but he's like hungry and curious, and and so I think those are the parts that are just startlingly similar. How do you think about partnership construction? Right, because you mentioned you had no investment experience, your newest partner had no investment experience. Sarah had a bunch of mm-hmm. investment experience as well as some operating experience. Mm-hmm. How do you think about you know before you just recruited Victor, like? Who's someone who we need to add to the team, or what is sort of the right combination of skill sets and personalities that makes it a really strong partnership? I mean, it's, it's something that we're we're very intentional and thoughtful about because I think one of the things that you probably are hearing from from Eric is like, yes, the job is an individual sport, but there are moments when you come together as a group where you really want to construct a way of working together, a partnership where in that critical moment, and there are some really critical moments that happen in venture, you know, the moment of deciding, the moment of winning, and then of course, supporting the company during some really important, crucial moments. Those moments are when we come together and really believe that the firm is at its best self because we get to be, you know, larger than the sum of the parts, basically. And so, when we think about then those moments, the sourcing, the deciding, closing, supporting, and then, you know, finally exiting, you know, and, and you think about 
on the sourcing side, on the kind of top of funnel, like, well, where where do we not have a lot of exposure right now as as a group? You know, you think about um, the deciding part, like you, how is somebody's perspective going to come to the table and bring, you know, make us all better? Maybe somebody spikes. We all have different ways in which we spike. So does somebody spike in business model analysis and in kind of the people relationships and in the empathy for the founder, whatever, whatever it might be. And then you kind of think through that all the way down. So you have like a little bit of context awareness almost when we're having these conversations. And then ultimately, in the same way that it's a bit falling in love with a founder and a company, when we meet it, there's something that ends up just feeling right when we when we meet somebody and develop a relationship with them. After me, there was Chathan, whom Peter was on uh, the board of Elastic with. Miles was on the board of Benchling with Eric and and super great with me. You know, Victor is the CEO of a benchmark company. And so we got to see him through a few years of of him being, you know, the operator of an investment of ours. And so we get these moments of, you know, a moment that you lead up to where you make a decision because you've fallen in love and it has that, the depth of relationship usually and also that context awareness. And so... Is it more bottoms up? Hey, this, we just have to have this person, or is it is it somewhat tops down? Of hey, we're we're weak in this network area, or weak in this sector, and we're comparing, let's say, Victor with other people who are kind of. It's, I, it's, 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 it's just there's first, no like one yeah, way, yeah. you know, but yeah. it has these elements. It's kind of like you know, people ask, oh, "Are you roadmap investors? Are you thesis yeah. investors?" Yeah. And I would say like some some of us will develop a thesis, and certainly we'll see like an area that we believe is is coming together so we can, you know, nurture a prepared mind. And then you just meet a founder and you didn't expect to be excited about that that area or company, but they say something and you just see something you can't unsee. Yeah. And it's it's a similar dynamic. So you guys are poachers. Uh, <laughs> you're gifted poachers. You know, as, as, you, know, you mentioned, you know, Victor, you said CEO, Miles was at Thrive, Chatham was at NEA, you were at, at Greylock. Um, so you you just happen to work with these investors like, hmm, they would be even better at benchmark. Obviously, you have a better offer than any other firm given how your firm's structured. But what, what's the process of like getting to conviction and and sort of poaching? <laughs> how do you guys think about it? It's long and uh, <laughs> it's, it's long and tortured and windy. Um, it's such an organic process because it, again, it's such a commitment, right? Something yep. we we bring on a new partner. I think when I joined. Six years had gone by between Matt. Matt was before me, and then um, might have been even closer to like six, six or seven years, wow. like between Matt joining and and me joining. So you were the bridge between the third hour. Between yeah, yeah but I think the beginning of the third yeah, the third generation, maybe. And and it's just an organic long process. Are you deliberately recruiting, or like is we're it? always recruiting? Okay. Always. We're always recruiting. We spend time on it weekly, really. And part of it is like, what are you, this is where it's kind of amorphous and, yeah. and weird is like, you're not recruiting to say like, wow, we need an enterprise SaaS infrastructure investor at this level. Like, yeah. you, you know, it's not, it's not anywhere close to that rigorous, right? It's that part of the job is perpetually meeting amazing people. And so you're kind of constantly trying to to meet great people in the industry and um, super smart up and comers. Like we spend a lot of time with, you know, 20 to 30 year olds who are, are proving themselves and breaking out and making, making a name for themselves or building a reputation that um, of, of having huge impact and being really savvy. And so we're kind of constantly trying to meet those people. 
And then every once in a while, you'll have a conversation with the CEO or with a fellow investor or um, with an entrepreneur that makes you think like, huh, the person might be really good, uh, <laughs> you know, and would fit right in and and add dimensions to us, but relate and and would be a good cultural fit. And let's explore that further. And, yeah. you know, and then I'll be like, hey, Sarah, I met this person. Yeah. It tickled my fancy. Like, let's meet again. Um, and so- it's kind of it's it's pretty organic that way, in terms of the process. It takes a lot of time, but it's um, it's really rewarding. Our friend Scott Belsky, um, who worked with you guys for for a mm -hmm. few years and and remains good friends, of course. One thing that was surprising to him in a good way about his time at Benchmark is not just that you guys spend time talking about products and founders and spaces, but also that there was this kind of sophistication about what's happening more macro, what's happening in economy, what's happening in finance. And um, kind of a funny analogy I'll make is this. Uh, sometimes I see like some war veteran complaining about the, the direction the country has gone. Mm. Or when I talk to older venture capitalists and they look at the past decade of venture, they're like, I can't believe it's been, <laughs> it's been, it's been like this because you haven't been rewarded for playing the right way. And, mm. and many people have, have been, I mean, many people have lost for playing the wrong way, but many people have also been rewarded for playing, I don't say the wrong way, but a little fast and loose or a little bit just sure. not super, not super, you know, fundamentals by, by the book. And sure. so it, it must've been challenging for, for you guys or even just the past generation being so fundamental and by the book, or maybe having to stretch at certain times in an era where it was more chaotic. You have to play the game on the field. Yeah. But at the same time, it's really hard to time these bubbles. I think one grounding thing that's really helpful, I think anybody, it doesn't matter if you're an athlete or a musician or an executive or a venture capitalist or an engineer, you do your best work when you're doing something you love to do. Like if you love it, like really love it, love, love the job, love what you're building, what you're doing, um, the people you're working with, you'll do your best work. And I think that actually, that resolves a lot of problems, yeah. right? Which is like, in the sense that if you're like, I don't want to speculate. Yeah. Like, I just, it, like, it's not in my nature. It's not fun for me because I get value. I, I get value and satisfaction looking at like a durable company that is compounding year after year. Yeah. And I know that 10 years from now, it is still going to be here. And it's going to be five times the size and making an impact to their customers and to their employees and to their investors. And I get a lot of satisfaction from that. I don't get a lot of satisfaction from like, you know, winning, winning a hand at a casino. Yeah. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me in the yeah. same way. But you're definitely right. Like in the last several years, people have made a lot of money doing that and speculating or um, momentum investing or whatever. And I, that's fabulous. Like yeah. I think, you know, it's great. It's great that they, they've been able to do that. But I don't know that we get a lot of satisfaction from that and a lot of joy. And so by focusing on what you love and like that part and just the great entrepreneur with a great idea at a special moment in time, I think it solves a lot of yeah. what, the FOMO. What, I, I agree with that. And like what I'd add is, you know, actually when we look at our investment pace and I think it was 2020, 2021, it was historically slower. Yeah. And it's because we value so deeply the depth of relationship that we form with the founders that we oh, ended so up true. backing. So and what you felt in that era was this, you know, Zoom screen, you know, it was just like the founder, like it was just like we were another face 
And every time you would you would have a first call with a founder for Zoom, we have six term sheets, yeah. you know, and I'm happy for them. But like, what are they looking for? And it just became a little bit this optimization that things were just moving so quickly all the yeah. time. And and it wasn't that depth of relationship that we we value and is what brings us the joy in the work that we do of partnering over these good times and bad times with with companies that all inevitably go through, especially now. I mean, holy cow, things just yeah. thrash all the time. And so the person you have in your corner, I think, on the board is more important now than it probably has been in any of the prior eras. Like, that just wasn't as much of a fit for us. Yeah. And, and then I look at this year, and we're actually on pace for making the most new investments in a year wow. than we have been for 10 years. Wow. And it's just because like now it's back. I think there's a couple things, which is like one, you just think about the last few years. It has been so hard to be a founder, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Like you've gone through these incredible moments of thrash, you know, COVID's behind us, but then you have, you know, the in interest rates changing what happens there. You have Silicon Valley Bank and what happens there and these like crazy weekend mm -hmm. where everybody was wondering how they're going to make payroll. And these things happen now that no matter what size company you are, you're going to have to deal with these huge systemic shocks. Yeah. And I think that makes founders care and really value so much more not the firm, but yeah. who that person is that you're going to be partnering with. And so like that's like number one where like people care now more than ever, not more than ever, but certainly more than the last 10 years yeah. of who that partner is that you're you're choosing. And I hear that a lot with the founders that I, I meet every, every day. And the second thing is that there's a little bit of like, oh, thank, you know, we're not in that craziness of having to make these very fast decisions. And then you have the founders who did make those decisions and warn other founders not to do it, yeah. to like really get to know the partner that you're you're having on your board. And I think those two things coming together, and of course, you know, so many of the interesting trends that are happening in the in the world of technology has meant that we just feel like this is, you know, this is a type of time that we love to to make new commitments. It feels like the last few years there was a lack of discipline between and the relationship between investor and, and and founders. Maybe investors were a bit too submissive. Founders were raising all, all these crazy rounds, et cetera. And now is a is a return to back to basics. I'm curious how you guys think about today, sort of the proper pushback between, you know, in the investor founder dynamic. I think that in any relationship like that, where you're trying to create something or build something, you need some tension, right? Like if you think about like engineers working with product managers and designers, like you need push and pull, like you need constraints, like you need it to go back and forth. And through that tension, you get better results, right? Um, and in times it's swung, like it swings too far one way or too far the other way, right? Like I think one of the, the challenges, for example, would be with the East Coast venture capitalists mm -hmm. or the European venture capitalists, like the financing for tech companies was such a so scarce in those geographies for so long that 
they had too much power. Like the investors had way too much power, and it, and, it, and I think it led to suboptimal results. Like you didn't have um, the ambition or the dreaming that you would get. Otherwise, you're you're kind of getting forced to cash flow break even as a three year old company. Like that's not you, that's not necessarily useful. And by the same token, I think it can swing too far the other way, right? And and so I think it needs to be productive, um, but. Ultimately, like the relationship and the partnership with the founder is is really based on like working closely together and yeah. trust. Because then I think you can all realize like, hey, we're pushing back or asking a question or pulling on something with the same objective of creating the biggest and best company that we can. Yeah. yeah. And I think that North Star alignment is really important. To me, that's that's exactly what it comes down to is I think there's almost a positive selection bias. And I feel this all the time when meeting with a founder, there's you know a group of founders that they just want to build the best yeah. damn company they can build, the one that has the most impact. They have the ambition to build something as great as they possibly can. Yeah. And those founders don't want someone to just come to the board meeting and clap, you know, they want mm -hmm. to know what does great look like when they're hiring that next leader. We always think about pulling forward the future into the present. So you're not just optimizing for that next round, but you're really optimizing for like, what is the end state of this company and how do we build, you know, a company that has the best fundamentals, you know, escapes competition, has the culture that is going to have all the right checks and balances to to really build something that endures. And, and so I find that I get most energized when we're pushing a little bit more. I think like, you know, and this is one of the benefits of only making one or two investments a year is that we're more enmeshed. We're almost always involved in recruiting all the leaders. We know the, the founders really well, and we can start to see, okay, it looks like Remember that thing we heard in the back channel when we were hiring this person? I think it's starting to show up, yeah. you know, and like pulling mm -hmm. forward some of those decisions. And when you make a decision 10% earlier and you make the hire 10% better, 10% faster, whatever it ends up being, those things compound. But oftentimes it means that we're advocating for something that we see as important, but not necessarily urgent yeah. before the founder themselves might otherwise have seen it because there's so much else going on. And oftentimes the last thing you want to do when you're a founder is, you know, think about adding something new to your plate, even though you know it's probably the right thing to do and yeah. it'll be the right investment and it'll help you two quarters from now, even if it's going to hurt you, you know, the next two months. But that work means pushing a little bit yeah, and advocating a little bit. And we hope it ends up bending the curve a little bit more for these companies and leading to founders that want that. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. One of your beliefs is that platform teams exist to scale the GP rather than get leverage to the founder. Yeah. And I found that curious because don't you want to add as, as much support as, as you can you, you know, or get as much leverage? You have assistants, you have principal and Blake. And my, my take on that is that you believe the costs of having the platform team in terms of all the coordination or sort of how it excuses maybe uh, you know the GP to spend less time outweighs the benefit of getting the extra support for, yeah. for the founder. We are not a group of individuals that rest on our laurels. We're right. always, yeah. you know, thinking of refounding benchmark, yeah. re-asking. Re you meet somebody who's a super talented 
talent leader, yeah. you know, should we? Yeah. And I think what we realize is even if we had it, we wouldn't use it. Yeah. Because we actually love the work yeah. of, you know, helping a founder, you know, find that great sales leader. And we think that we, by being involved and 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 ourselves as as partners, getting the reps over and over and over again, that we ourselves get better yeah. at advising the founder on you know the different types of engineering leaders or sales leaders or whatever it is, the network, you know, the back channeling, whatever it is, and then of course helping close. We want to be involved in that and fully integrated, and having. A blind spot on any leader, I feel it. Like when I'm not involved with helping recruit one of the leaders, I'm, it feels to me almost like a little blind spot on the team that I just don't know yeah. that executive as well as I know the other ones. And having that full, like really having the full experience with the founders going through those recruiting calls together, I think ends up meaning a better, um, a better relationship with the founder and our ability to be a better partner to the founder. And so. If we had it, I think it would be the least used talent team. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just not us. Yeah. I think so much of the value of a partnership with an entrepreneur happens in these like very few moments a year. Like yeah. I think there's like two or three, it's not every month where the entrepreneur is faced with a, a key decision, a, a, you know, a crossroads of some kind and what to do, what not to do and how to change something. And like by definition, that it's it's not an obvious answer. Like, of course, they've listened to the podcast and they've read the blog posts and they've looked at all the VC content marketing and they've read the books of the companies. But like, but it's situation specific, right? It's market specific. It's company specific. It's personnel specific. And in those moments, the entrepreneur wants a sounding part yeah. board, a partner to just navigate it to try to make it, as Sarah said, like a little bit better decision, right? And the question is like, what do you need to have in order to be a really effective sounding board in those moments? Because I think all the value comes from those moments. Yeah. And I think in order to be a really valuable sounding board in those moments, you just have to have the context. And you get the context by doing the work on an ongoing basis. And then in those moments, you can be really valuable as a sounding board, ask the right questions, help the entrepreneur have conviction or more conviction or confidence in the decision that they're making um, and their recommendation. And as Sarah said, bend the curve. And yeah. so like, I think that that's so much of how we tackled the job. That's well said. I'm only 33, uh, but even I've been amazed at how every few years, there's just a new crop of entrepreneurs. It's um, amazing. Yeah. And kind of the board changes a bit. And you know, I imagine that there's some percentage of deals for whom you guys have a unique perspective on that there aren't other firms competing for. And then there's some percentage of deals that you mentioned earlier, the six term sheets, that they're very competitive. You know, it's a very competitive venture landscape. And you mentioned that deal activity this year is up, but past few years has been down and other firms, you know, do more on content marketing and they do more deals. And so if, if these next crop of entrepreneurs are, hey, their deals are funded by X firm and that, that firm also just is more out there, how do you guys think about remaining the most relevant or the most top of mind or the most favorite firm relative to your best peers? 
it's a perpetual challenge. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. Like it, it's a perpetual challenge. There are six of us covering technology. Like it's a, yeah. that's tough, um, yeah. and it's and it's a tall order. So I think I think that part's there. I think there are kind of maybe two comforting things um, in it. One is the entrepreneurs we do work with have to we have to deliver for them. And because there are not that many of them, we really have to deliver for them. Yeah. And, and, and we want to do that. And we're incentivized to do that, I guess, is, is, is the point. And so I think in every competitive situation I've ever been in, it's the entrepreneurs that we work with that have been the biggest advocates that have tipped it in our favor yeah. every single time. And so I think we have to continue to foster that. The other part is you don't have to do all of the investments. Like you don't have to get every company. You don't have right. to do that. We aspire to be in the few that matter and that really turn into um, big, really special companies. But that isn't all of them. It's not most of them. It's not even a large percentage of them. So you don't worry about seeing every deal. Some firms need to need to see everything yeah, and they can't miss anything. But just can't. Yeah, you're not structured that way. Yeah, we just can't. Like, it's just you not possible. Yeah. What we have to do is is really double down on selection. Yeah, selection and... Um, and giving the founders a great, great experience. Um, in the last decade, we had a lot of, part of it was the sort of economic environment, but also we had this, this philosophy of blitzscaling, right? Um, and particularly around sort of tech-enabled businesses that weren't necessarily software-first businesses. And there's dozens of them that raised tons of money. Some of them did well, some of them did less well. We work as one in, in your portfolio. I'm curious what you think the broader lessons are from these kind of tech-enabled businesses. And mm. if you think venture will keep in, in investing in them or yeah, what, what do you think are the lessons that you, are you've gone pretty deep in marketplaces, some of which are more software than, than others? I think it was Bill who talked about how um, the more optimistic that are the looser the funding environment, the lower the gross margins are yeah. in the businesses that get funded. And certainly that is a dynamic that you see a lot or have seen a lot and, and is very different now. I think the other thing that I think about a lot is, you know, we had um, one a CEO of a big public company come in. He used this expression that I, I love, which is that bad breath is worse than no breath. Hmm. And he was talking about account executives, basically, that so many companies during the last, you know, five plus years, 10 years, the last part of this bull run, have been so oriented towards growth. And it's yeah. been, the bar has been set by all these companies where everybody's aspiring to the 3x growth, the four, you know, like these numbers that end up meaning a few different things. They they mean, and it's an orientation towards consuming more capital more quickly. It is a land grab orientation. And there's there's reasons to do a land grab. If you have a network effect, then you want to run fast. Yeah. You know, you want to, the, the stronger your network effect, the further ahead you are than, than the pack, the more dominant you become. And then it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so there's certainly types of businesses for which like, that game is never going to change, and we love to play that game when we can do it. When it, the company, it's the, it's the right company for that type of, of orientation. But more often than not, you see this dynamic where people chase growth before the fundamentals are there, before they're able to support it with the right kind of organization, where it might actually, you know, in kind of a classic marketplace, the idea of going after... 15 cities very quickly as opposed to 
really going deep and dominating one city. That orientation, I think, has really changed just because the funding environment, you know, as interest rates go up, yeah. there's a very clear counterweight that happens on the company's ability to fund these early days. And I think it's going to be healthier for these companies long term in terms of, again, the bones and the DNA that they end up crafting. Sequoia famously in I believe 1999 funded, was it Webvan? Benchmark did too. It was a joint investment. Okay. I say maybe was the only to say that the company didn't work out according to hopes, but they thought, hey, still the right thesis. And maybe it's not the wrong time or the wrong you know company, but a decade and a half later, Instacart, uh, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and that one worked out. And I'm curious, going back to tech-enabled businesses, there's a lot of like real estate companies that have, you know, raised as tech companies, not just real estate, but other kinds of companies. And I'm curious if you if you could imagine a similar story in the future of like, hey, was was WeWork the the right business model for venture scale, just you know, not the right time or execution or whatever. I wonder if 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 you guys are thinking about more discipline there, or actually, no, these are these are good businesses. Software is eating the rest of the world and they make sense for us, just business models. I could totally say, I, I say never say never. Yeah. We looked at a bull semen company uh, this last week <laughs> um, or the last couple of weeks. Bull semen. Um, bull semen, like literally bull <laughs> semen, like semen from bulls. Um, In your personal and, time? Or? Uh, <laughs> right, well, this is the right, it's, it's the right question, which is like, it's a, you know, I think this is like the amazing thing. Like we never invested in a transportation company until we invested in Uber. Right. Like we certainly didn't invest in a real estate company until we invested in WeWork. And, um, you know, we've made very few hardware investments over the last 15 years, um, but we have an AI chip company called Cerebrus. And like, the point is that all these are capital intensive businesses, right? And so I'd say never say never. You're trying to like look for where the ground is shifting in the world, where there's a seam between like, between incumbents or something's changing that is going to allow, create a crack of opportunity for a ingenious scrappy founder to break through. Yeah. Like that's what you're looking for, right? And like sometimes it's just a granite wall and there's no crack. And that's a bad time, yeah. right? And uh maybe you can use a lot of money and get a lot of dynamite, but it, it depends how thick the granite is. Yeah. But other times there's like cracks and it, and if you look in the right way and you twist your head and you turn, you can kind of see a path through. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of what you're looking for. And those are the best, actually, in some ways, because it requires this, like, you know, cocked head looking sideways yeah. and the sun just right to see the path, yeah. which means a whole bunch of people won't see it. Yeah. And then sometimes there's just like a giant wide open path. <laughs> and what happens in those cases is like, you know, 20 people will see it and like everyone will try to funnel through. And like a lot of times that just, doesn't work for anybody. And so like it, it so you kind of it's a risk capital business and and you want to keep taking those shots and I think you know I think Instacart like did work and they seem to have done a really nice job. Yeah, kudos to them. Yeah, kudos to them. Just yeah. an incredible job executing in in what is a tough market. And then the last thing I was going to say is in markets like it's particularly difficult when you go through like a zerp environment, right? Zero interest rates for a long time capital is raining down. There's new sources of capital. That's one thing we haven't talked about, which Mm -hmm. is there's all new sources of capital for venture, right? That outside of the kind of traditional endowments and foundations, you have a lot of sovereign wealth money and other things that have come into venture family office, which will 
you know, some will pull back, but whatever. There was a lot in new capital. And then all of a sudden, like it changes and interest rates start going up very quickly. And of course, you have a global pandemic, which completely changes office policies and yeah. whether people are in the office or not in the office. Um, and so like, I would also say like, those are all like, they're not small complexities. Those yeah. are like societal changing things yeah. that have happened that make it particularly difficult in those kinds of businesses versus a traditional software business where your high gross margin, your primary cost is headcount. Like those are much easier to adjust or turn the dials on and especially in the recurring revenue business, right? And so some businesses are very forgiving to those types of macro changes and others are not. So what's the bull semen company do? Uh, <laughs> um, a, a super interesting company, amazing founders yeah. um, solving a real problem. And it's kind of one of these ones where it's obviously way off the beaten path for us and not something we know a lot about, but you have to look. What do you guys think about when you think about the companies in your portfolio, like what are, what are companies that scream like this is a benchmark company? This is the type of investing that we want to be doing. You know, I think about Chainalysis, which is my first investment at Benchmark. What was so fun about that company is like, you know, number one, it's kind of the classic hearing about a company, having a little bit of a thesis on the area, just kind of being intellectually really interested, provoked by what was happening in crypto, trying to figure out and think through. You know, we talk a lot about this idea of, you know, seeing the present clearly and looking at all the use cases and, and not really having a lot of clarity at that point on what the use cases were going to be in crypto beyond, you know, what was happening at the time, which was store of value, raising money, you know, more illegal things or, you yeah. know, outside of, you know, the, the normal legal framework, reaching out. And while everybody else at that point in time was thinking about ICOs and token investing and all these things, here we saw a company and a set of founders who saw something that other people didn't see. Michael, the CEO, had been at Kraken, one of the exchanges, and realized that if crypto was going to become a big thing, there was going to need to be a company that was going to partner both with the public sector and the private sector to get the public sector more comfortable yeah. with the private sector that was regulated, was touching fiat, yeah. to then participate in crypto as well. And so he saw something before other people did, brought in two incredible founders. And then we saw, you know, both the early traction momentum and a possibility for this company to become the dominant player in their space, yeah. you know, which is rare to find in, in you know, software as a service companies. And it wasn't actually at the time that competitive of a deal. The company was over here this exception to where all the, the momentum was in crypto at the time. And we got to partner, be the first board member, uh, which is always our aspiration to partner as, as early in the company's you know, life as, as possible, ideally that first board member. And now it's been you know, six, almost six years of partnering uh, and hopefully many more to come. My first investment at Benchmark was Confluent and it was the three founders and they were like coming out of LinkedIn. They had started this open source project called Kafka. Um, and that was it. And they, they were still employees. And, um, so it was the initial round of financing and, um, and backing them. And it, it was a popular open source project, but people viewed it as kind of this like 
component that wasn't that important. That was a pipeline to something else. And the founders led by Jay Krebs painted this vision of why like that view was incomplete and it was actually going to be a much, much bigger thing. And here were the path that they were going to take to it. And it was like, you know, going back to this like granite wall analogy, like, you know, cock your head and look right through and here it is. Like, this is how it's going to go. And we have a lot of history with a lot of open source companies going back to Red Hat. It was like data infrastructure stuff that I like and really authentic founders who just like lived and breathed the problem the solution, had thought about it extensively. And so, you know, what a cool project to get to be an investor in, participant in. And here we are now, I guess, nine years. And, you know, it's a whatever, $10 billion public company. So from nothing to that over the course of that time has been a spectacular journey. And I think like crawling through that crevice was was something that they, they did astonishingly well. Let's go deep on some on some sectors. I want to start with the consumer social. So you guys have done some of the more iconic consumer social companies of the past, you know, 20 years. I mentioned Snap, Instagram, others. And I remember we were talking a few years ago, Sarah, before the pandemic, that you're saying, hey, maybe there's an opportunity to disrupt some of these giants. You know, people are, are bearish, but just maybe there's an opportunity. I'm curious for your reflections mm. on what's what's happened. Let's say I went in a coma, you know, right before the pandemic or right <laughs> when we were, we were chatting. What are your learnings or what happened in consumer social? It was, would have been a good move to go into a coma. I mean, look, like I think you and I talked about a post I wrote about participatory social and yeah. like this idea that I still believe in and, you know, which is that so much of what social is today is this lean back experience where you kind of just feel bad about yourself. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things I almost I always loved about Pinterest, which was that it felt like this space you could go to online, which was rare and wouldn't make you feel bad about yourself. It was about dreaming and being inspired and thinking about a more creative life. But so much of social had become this space, and we see it in anxiety levels and depression levels of, of young people. It's like, it doesn't make people feel good about themselves. But what makes people feel good about themselves is participating, engaging with their friends, doing that work. And so, you know, I still believe that there's going to be a company that comes along that maybe it starts off looking like a game, but will be about that connection that will emerge and will have the the potential to disrupt these incumbents. But what happened instead in like, you know, the last four or so years was you had these two things come together, which was this, you know, real maximization of the algorithmic feed. So you're, you're bringing in this kind of global maxima of content, you know, personalized for each individual, which makes these experiences, you know, so much more of what they already were. And then you also have the most addictive format that we've had in social, which is short video. And so, of course, those two things come together with TikTok, which is just consumed minutes. And, yeah. you know, Instagram is doing a really good job doing something that I've never seen another social company do, which is take the same atomic unit of another platform and and establish it in their own and, and make it happen. But so they did it with stories. They're doing it now with short video and reels. And it's just so addictive. I read this book, Dopamine Nation, went on a social fast 
And the thing that I just found that most pulled you in was short form video. And it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And it just means that the job of building a social network was always really hard, right? Like the list of companies that tried to do it and haven't succeeded is, is exceedingly long. And then that level of hardness just got turned all the way up. And so it's tough. Um, but I think it's kind of back to looking for the exceptions and a little bit not not giving up um, when everybody else has. Continue to, to be open-minded here, but it has not been easy. There's always this hope that every new generation has its own yes. so- social network. Um, and so hopefully it's not just you know, yeah. the same yeah, ones yeah. forever. But it seems like LinkedIn is just the professional network for every like it feels like you mentioned yeah. the graveyard of of companies that have mm-hmm. tried to compete with it. It feels yeah. like there's just no disrupting that. Is is that something you believe or is that something you've you've looked for? I mean, certainly like I've seen a lot of companies that are, yeah, we're the mobile first, yeah. Gen Z first, LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. I think the the companies that I've been more interested in are actually the marketplaces that have labor. Right and are building a profile for those workers. So we have two companies in our portfolio that I can speak to. One is Instawork. I mean, this is just an incredible founder who has had an extraordinary level of grit because it was a marketplace for workers, for events. You know, imagine you're hosting an event and you need a bartender, the waiters, waitresses. They are a marketplace for that. It was pre-COVID. You can imagine this company was growing like crazy. COVID happened, yeah. nothing. Really took the company down to the studs, launched in a new vertical, uh, industrial warehouse use cases. And now, of course, it's doing incredibly well having these two verticals going back to events and then the industrial use cases. And every worker, you know, if you're a bartender, are you on LinkedIn? No. But you have a profile with Instawork. Mm-hmm. And the history of your work is on Instawork. The other example is a company called Medley. Uh, it's a marketplace for nurses. You know, you're an outpatient surgical center and you're somebody calls in sick, you you need a nurse, you know, pronto. You use Medley for that. And then you start realizing this is what happens with Instawork too, that instead of having the people there on staff, you can actually rely entirely on this new network of workers to to fulfill all the work that you have. And same thing, these nurses have profiles now on, on, on Medley that is a reflection of their history as a nurse. And so these kind of vertical networks that have emerged I think there's going to continue to be other verticals. Real estate always seems like one of the obvious ones where you're going to see these types of networks form that way. And they never look like the last generation, right? This is not a network. It didn't start with a network and then become recruiting. It kind of started with the human capital and then became a network. Who knows what the next generation will look like? The question I've been curious about for many years now, but I've never figured out the right solution for is, is how you bring reputation online. Mm-hmm. We, we've done it with certain certain categories like Rate My Professor, yeah. you know, things like that. But reputation is so valuable. I mean, reference checks that we do is just is so redundant on so, so many levels. And at the same time, it also feels like information that just doesn't want to be on the internet or, or something. But I think at some point, someone's going to figure out an elegant way to represent that because it's it seems like one of the great scarcities in, in this new AI era is information that's in people's heads that's not on the internet. Yes. Rich Barden was the CEO of uh, many 
uh, incredible Expedia. companies, just in Expedia, Zillow was a, a venture partner with, with Benchmark. And one of the things he always talks about is yeah, the the data that is in the shadows, yeah. you know, whether it's a data system that's already kind of exists that's structured and you can bring it online or in our brains and you can bring it into uh, public domain, Glassdoor yeah. being an example of that, another company that he helped found, that is always a recipe for really a big opportunity. Yeah. It feels like, you know, we've been talking about different eras, internet era, mobile era, you know, we had a bit of a crypto, you know, we're in AI, we'll, we'll get to that. It feels like different eras, you know, values accrue differently between incumbents and startups. It feels like mm -hmm. internet era produce, you know, literal trillion dollar companies, mobile era, you know, hasn't been as long, so maybe they'll get that big, but it feels like they won't. It feels like they, you know, produce some epic companies. We've talked about some of them, but it feels like it was an extension of the internet. It actually enabled the internet companies to get to, to trillion dollar. And it feels like that's sort of the consensus on, on AI. Then in some ways it feels like an extension of something that will continue to compound, that there will be big companies, but the biggest gains will be reaped by, by the incumbents. Is that an accurate read or do you share that read or how would you edit that characterization? I think we don't know. I think we don't know. I think it's early. Like I, I think in the AI world, it feels like there's kind of three distinct things that are happening and I'm sure many others, but one is the model piece, right? And the foundational models and everything else. And I think that that's an area where um, there's a few organizations who are spending gobs of money and nine months later, there are open source alternatives <laughs> that are almost as good um, and maybe even better in specific applications and like were developed by, you know, three guys and dog and a couple million bucks. And so like, it's kind of an astonishing element and it's such a tremendously depreciating asset um, like that, uh, the foundational models. There's a lot of cool work happening there. You know, we're, we've always been long open source. I think that continues to be really interesting and there'll be a lot of cool stuff happening there. Second part is something that Sarah's talked about before, which is like there's new vertical companies where they're selling the work. A lot of it's selling entry-level white-collar jobs, whether it's, you know, medical transcription or paralegal work or assistants or analysts um, and so forth. You know, LLMs in particular are really good at that. There are new companies that are developing to do that. I think there's a real question as to the durability or defensibility of those companies, but they're super interesting. They're getting real traction. They're solving real problems. So like, I think that's the second category. And then third is what you mentioned, which is their incumbents, whether it's, you know, GitHub with Autopilot or Copilot or, you know, Microsoft introducing the writing capabilities into, into the Office platform and so forth, where there is enhancement to an incumbent base product and distribution, which seems to like work really, really well. And I think in that third category, AI has the ability to actually reshuffle the deck there's some hierarchy of those products and, and those companies. And you could totally imagine the fourth or fifth place player or the startup who kind of comes in with better AI or more AI-centric approach leapfrogging the winner just because it becomes so necessary. And I think you're going to see a lot happening there. You know, I think we're like watching all three and we're in it. And where does value accrue? Like, are we going to see some breakout companies in that second category in those vertical applications? I think it feels like we will. It, it's hard to decipher right now, but like, I think we're, we're meeting them all and like trying to understand that and, and develop a conviction uh, one way or another. And then the same kind of thing with the incumbents and, and, you know, with the models, 
you know, maybe I'm a little more skeptical right now. Um, just it feels like amazing technology and I'm excited to see open source continue to win, but there's, there's a lot of work to do to turn those into monetizable opportunities. Oftentimes the first wave of companies that emerge can create a head fake in a way for people mm-hmm. and how they analyze so the, the industry. And so it is natural for the first wave of companies to kind of continue the, the mental model that we've had for the, the prior generation. And I love this, this saying, I forget who said it, which is like, the startup has to race to get to distribution before the incumbent gets to innovation. Yeah. And certainly, like a lot of what has happened is that you've seen startups um, that you know saw GPT-3, took advantage of it, and ran really quickly. But man, the incumbents are really good yeah. at innovating right now. And so they caught up very, very quickly. And that created this kind of sentiment in the ecosystem of like, oh, the incumbents are going to be the mm-hmm. main beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. But now we're starting to see this next generation. And I think a lot about what Eric was talking about with work as an example, where you always have to think about what the jujitsu move is going to be when you go against the incumbents. Like, you know, in marketplaces, actually, it doesn't really matter how big, you know, the incumbent is. It's always like, how much better are you at making the customer happy than the incumbent can? And what's a jujitsu move here? Like certainly there's like new surface area, right? Like going after verticals that wouldn't have otherwise supported a software company that had to sell a productivity lift, you know, 10%, 15%, whatever, trying to make that business model work versus a company that's actually just selling work, which is yeah. a 95% productivity improvement. That's like very disruptive. It's new surface area that I really believe is going to create a new generation of companies. And then when you think about the incumbents, you know, uh, Eric's third category, well, where are they vulnerable? They're vulnerable in that most of them charge per seat. And that is a real innovator's dilemma. And so, yes, they can, you know, make each of their seats more productive, give them superpowers, but it might be that a company comes along and doesn't need to charge by seat, has a different way of thinking about what they're building, the value proposition, how they price it to the customer that is disruptive. Adam D'Angelo, the CEO of, of Coro, another company that another founder we get to work with, talked about this as the next industrial revolution. Yeah. And it really feels that way. But there's something unfair with like, okay, if you're a trillion dollar company, and you leverage AI in order to build 10% more market cap, that's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's totally. kind of a little bit that dynamic that we all face, but when you're thinking about it from where we are, there's gonna be some really important companies that get built. Yeah, it is interesting. You mentioned GitHub. GitHub was a company that had very low revenue when it sold, is that, is that accurate? I think mm-hmm. it had a couple hundred million, yeah. 300 oh, million. But it, you know, I just saw a hugging face to raise this big round. It feels mm. like they have pretty low revenue. Like it feels like there's some companies that raise a very high valuations that have some real value there, a really strong community with really strong data, but just haven't figured out monetization. And it feels like, I don't know if they're built to sell to incumbents, but it feels like it's unclear how they become independent, you know, massive businesses. There's definitely a hype cycle in AI right now. Yeah. And so I, I think that's just the reality. It always happens. It's fine. But Here's the thing about hype cycles. Normally, in one of these hype cycles, there are a handful of companies 
that like you almost could pay whatever <laughs> and it still works as yeah. an investment. Like there are some like amazing things. And and part of the reason there's hype and like all these companies get marked up at these incredible prices is because everyone's looking for them. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's looking for for one of those right. companies that is going to be so special. And so it turns out if you overpay for a company that ends up being a trillion dollar company or a hundred billion dollar company, it doesn't really matter, right? It's that's fine. And there's always a lot to figure out. Like people forget the early days of Google, like they didn't have monetization. They had amazing, amazing growth, right? Yeah. In terms of it was, they were stealing share. This is, I'm talking about like 99, 2000, I think 2001 even, they had just stealing tremendous share from other search engines because it was a better product. And they they were really unclear on how to monetize it. I think at one point there were they were actually worried that they were going to run out of money because they were spending all their money on data center costs like to get the <laughs> to keep it up and so you, know, you can figure it out yeah. like is, is my point if you have enduring value if you have enduring value and you have something that is there it gives you the license or the opportunity to figure it out it gives yeah. you the freedom to figure it out um with with some period of time and you know that was always one of the big pushbacks on social networks right for a long time if you remember it's like how are these social never networks going to ever make money are they ever going to make money do they have a mm -hmm. business model blah blah yeah, blah and then like here we have Facebook, which is what, 500 billion, 600 billion right now. And so like, you know, it turns out like it can work yeah. and configure them out. What we've seen in this era so far is that companies can can grow insanely fast or much quicker, can get attention, you know, quicker, but they can also lose that quicker as well. And, um, you know, there's a whole sort of, uh, you know, meme at this point of like the just wrapper around GPT or people, I think Jasper is an example, some company that, you know, grow grew super quick and maybe people are unsure about at the moment. How do you think about, I think you wrote something to this effect, Sarah, of like, what are the types of companies that are going to have en enduring value or, or truly defensible? When you think about most SaaS companies, the reality is, is that very few of them have had a tech moat, right? Sometimes, occasionally, I know with Amplitude as an example, like they did work on like the core database to like deliver the service in a way that wouldn't have been cost prohibitive for them to do it. But like very rarely are these companies actually... The, you know, really about some special IP. It's always about what is the advantage of scale that you get, the getting at the market faster, X with a better product, the work that you do as you build more and more of the features that people need so that you can deliver more and more value to, to the customer. And I think certainly you see that a lot, even with Jasper of, you know, the work that they do, fine-tuning, getting more enterprise-ready, like these things, you kind of take it for granted, but it's like real work that has to happen in these companies. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot also is, is there something that as you build it, you're building something else that has accruing value? for the company, you know, whether that's the data set that you're building that lets you fine tune and, and, and make kind of the value proposition stronger and stronger, whether you're creating a new system of record for something, whether you're, there's a new data asset that you're creating that's almost an exhaust from doing the core work, but is itself valuable. And there's also just like the last thing, which is the core enterprise software work that sometimes has to happen of like building the functionality that makes it easier for these, you know, companies to, to grow in an organization. And so, you know, the thing that I worry more about is trying to get distribution before the incumbent gets innovation. That just seems, you know, there's a lot of companies that 
were, you know, a new document type that you could use to, you know, use a large language model to help you write. And then Notion adds, you know, uh, something exactly like that, where you already are, it's really, really hard to compete with that. You're not trying to do that race against innovation for, you know, for the incumbent. You're building something new that is a new surface area. That feels like the really important thing to focus on. I think the nature of moats, like moats are much more complex than they seem on the surface, I think. And I'll use it, I'll pick a controversial company, Tesla. And I think one of the things that's interesting, so a large car manufacturer, CEO said this, an incumbent car manufacturer, internal combustion engine one, said like, you know, it's like, what's the moat for one of those companies? And his view was that the moat was like how they build a car. And his primary concern wasn't like electric versus like this or like that. It was like, did Tesla figure out a better way to build a car? And what was meant by that was like everything, like the unibody design, the biggest casting machines in the world, you know, the emphasis on like software battery development, like, and how do you, how do you manage that? And his point was like every single thing that they had done over the last hundred years was built around one way of building a car, right? And an assembly line where you do things a certain way and you go this way. And Tesla may have figured out a better way to build a car. Like that's the moat. And that's the thing that has like shifted. We're trying to figure it out. Like where is the moat on a lot of these AI companies and how do you think about it? But I think it might be more hidden and under layers or really like more convoluted or more complex maybe than um, than it seems on the surface. Say more about where you think people kind of misunderstand moats in general. Is it that they see them well, like there? Well, like you hear like these kind of, kind of simplistic things which are like, Data is the new oil and data is the moat. It's like, is it? Like, you know, like, I, yeah. like, okay, like maybe, or like, you know, one that's popular around the AI companies right now is like access to compute or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, is it? Like, I don't know. And you, like, that, those feel like things which are, you know, more transient or there are ways. I think what like data, take, take data as an example, like people have very consistently figured out ways around that. And I'm sure I'm wrong about some other case. Like there, there's some case where there is a huge proprietary data set that's really valuable, like, you know, Rentech, right? Renaissance Technologies, like they have built, uh, I think their business, they would say as a fund, right? An investment house is their data moat, which they have built over however many years and and really took time to develop. But like in general, I, I don't know that most of these companies who think they have a data moat have a data moat. Like, I don't think there's that much value in their proprietary data. It turns out like, yeah, they have their data and someone else has data that's available on the internet and it's basically as good. <laughs> so they're defensible for other reasons or they're not defensible? Yeah, it seems like, yeah. I mean, that seems yeah. like it, right? And so I think you kind of keep going through these things and you see examples like that where you can kind of come at it from a different direction. Let's take another example, just because we're talking about these really interesting businesses. It's like forever people thought like with Netflix, like their back catalog was the, the moat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It changes. That's really interesting. Venture capital firms don't have data moats. No, um, we do not have data moats. <laughs> we we we. <laughs> you benefit we from do, s- strong uh, brand moat, like long feedback loops. So brand is becomes a moat, but yeah, I think moat. I think brand is a moat, and then like you just have to wake up every morning running, yeah, um, with absolute reckless abandon, hustle, yeah, 
to maintain that. Peter said that, yeah, the, the day that I, uh, I, Peter, don't want to, you know, cold email a founder or think I'm too good to do that is the day where I stop being a good VC or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's just, it, it takes that. It really is something yeah. to that. Okay, we talked a bit about AI. I want to talk about crypto as well. Here's my read from the outside on, on benchmark crypto. You guys made some great, you know, you made made some money, made some great bets, chain analysis, you know, Bitcoin early, Zappo, I'm sure. So rare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. global elimination. Uh, yeah. I'm sure, you know, a, a few others, but relative to your peers, I don't want to say you set out, but you didn't go all in in mm. the same way. You were you were disciplined, mm. relatively disciplined, and um, the firms that lost the most and and maybe you know won the most feel like they were just more comfortable yoloing, mm. <laughs> and it, it feels like that's not as much in the benchmark DNA because you're more fundamentally more sophisticated. You're more you know going to do the thing that guaranteed does well versus willing to take these kind of like you know bet it all uh, type thing. Is is that an unfair read. I'm sure part of it's yellowing, but also part of it is um, it's just kind of like a different kind of fundamentals, which is more like what are other buyers going to do, like going to going to do, or more about like you know even NFTs is such a status driven yeah. thing, more like um, sort of awareness of the markets and just like a different kind of investing than fundamental venture investing. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Is actually like the way I I think of it is like there was a class of companies playing in the crypto space where they were founders that believed that company building was going to be really important. Yeah. They were founders that were excited about the technology that um, you know, was getting more and more mature around blockchains and crypto generally, but also recognized, you know, are oriented towards building an enduring company, doing the company building. Yeah. I think we have a very large percentage of those companies. Um, you know, the founders of SoRare are just incredible. And from the very beginning, even though they were participating in this NFT world that had a lot of hype around it, they were very oriented on finding a, a partner to help them build a really enduring company. Same thing with Global Illumination, which we just sold to OpenAI. And then, you know, Chainalysis, yeah. uh, Wences with Zappo. Yeah. Um, and so those companies, those founders were very oriented towards those types of businesses. Then there was another class of company, which is where, you know, the crypto focused funds ended up really orienting towards that were very focused on, you know, kind of the, the example of Uniswap of like, you know, a company that built an extraordinary amount of value with a super, super small team because they were able to use tokens and token economics in order to not need to do the company building and to to create the right incentives to enable and facilitate that ecosystem. There were great examples of companies there, Uniswap being one of them. There, there are many more. And there were a lot of companies, kind of to the earlier conversation with Eric, that that it felt like a very, very short-term yeah. orientation. I, I felt um I felt a little bit like it was, you know, the culture that kind of got set in crypto with ICOs where you write the white paper, you raise a lot of money, and then you'll figure out how to build the thing. Yeah. And and like the founders at that point, they don't they don't even need to be around the hoop because they've already got their tokens from the from the ICO raise. That permeated so much of the culture of building in crypto. It permeated how people thought about NFTs. And that just isn't our orientation. Like it's a game that a lot of people were able to play extraordinarily well and like kudos to them, but like that just isn't who we are. Like if we wanted, there are ways that benchmark we could 
all make more money, right? Like, you know, we were joking before we started about the benchmark growth fund, like, yeah, you know, wealth we could, yeah, yeah. wealth management, all those things. Like yeah. there are always those types of opportunities. And certainly that era felt like it for a while. I joked once that I felt like I was a professional basketball player and I took a rocket ship to Mars and I like tried to shoot a hoop and then the ball just like floated away. Like there was so much that wasn't who we are and the game that we want to play, which is that building enduring value, really partnering with the founder who wants to do that. And that's that's why we're here, yeah. is doing that work and that type of partnership. And that just felt very different. And so I think we, of the companies that fit the mold of partnership that we want, we were there. Yeah, We were in that arena. But yeah. we just, the other thing, you know, people did a lot of great investing, made a lot yeah. of money. That's not, that just wasn't, yeah, yeah. that type of orientation wasn't our thing. We're all in the arena just trying stuff. Some will work out. Yeah, yeah. I can't so. believe I said arena. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. Let's talk about healthcare for a minute. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was wondering if things have changed because we talked a few years ago, you know, your your wife is a longtime healthcare entrepreneur yes, and, yeah. and investor and and you were bearish about it after, after going mm. a little bit deeper as a, as a firm about it. Just, it's so hard, et cetera. Nothing changed. <laughs> Not looking you know, at there. I healthcare, health tech is it's just a, it's a really humbling yeah. space for a founder. And like, you know, there's a number I met with a founder just the other day, so super talented team that, you know, one of these they had an idea using AI for for a value proposition that makes so much sense. And then you start to ask the question of like, well, who's gonna pay? And how is the where are the incentives going to come from for that to happen? And you're just like, oh, these poor guys. Like they're gonna. I introduced them actually to a friend of ours, Malay, because um, I was like, Malay, like these are super smart, smart guys. Yeah. But you know, you they need help guiding the topology of healthcare and just the incredible incentives that are so not what you would rationally design if you had a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. And so. I think it's it's one of those spaces. There's some spaces in, in venture and what we do where I joke, you have to marry them, you can't date them. Yeah. Um, I actually felt kind of crypto token world was one of those spaces where if you try to date it, you're, it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. It's so specialized. I think healthcare is one of those two where it's a really hard one to date because you just have to have that mental map in your mind of all the incentives and all the different players and how it all fits together. And it's really tricky but to be surfacing there. To take the contrarian view. Please. There are emerging areas. Mm -hmm. You're on the board of Medley, yes. nurse marketplace. I work with Benchling and a company called Acuity MD, which serves the medical True. device companies. And so like there are these areas that are not directly hospitals and patient care. Yeah. Um, and the weird triumvirate of insurance patients and providers and like everything that goes on between them and and the weird incentives between them. But actually all of these other areas around them, which really do contribute to a better patient experience, better medicines, um, you know, better patient experience through better medical devices or better nurses, um, you know, better drugs that are important. There is a lot of interesting innovation happening 
and we're actually bizarrely invested in them. That's true. And um, and and actually, all those companies are doing well, um, which is kind of interesting too. And so, I think there's this other dynamic, which is just like maybe the way to tackle the the industry isn't to mess with this like triumvirate, which is at the core of it, or have to integrate with the EMR, which is you know controlled by one company largely that. Um, has like literally no incentive to do anything except increase the percentage of GDP that we spend on healthcare in the country. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just like maybe, like maybe we just have to come at it like this away, yeah, you know. Totally. And um, I think we'll continue to see those, and excited to see those companies because there, there, there is a lot of spend there. There's a lot of waste there. Um, there's a lot of room for innovation, um, and so it's just like finding the, the angle of attack. I appreciate the the light disagreement there. I said as a segue to when you guys are debating sort of the the, the refounding of the firm. What what are the debates that keep coming up, or what are the conversations or questions that you guys are asking yourself when you think about, hey, you know, I know we've said we're going to do this for so long, but is this something we should we should consider? What, what are the what are the questions? Probably the one that I think about the most, in, in part because I grew up in the industry this way. Yeah. You know, I started my career in venture as an analyst at Bessemer. And so lowest rung of the ladder, you know, cold calling yeah. founders, uh, which has, was, was kind of an early idea. You know, Jeremy Levine started that program at Bessemer and now has become, you know, the default in a way. Like these other firms, you know, as, as we talked about earlier, they see 100% yeah. of the companies that are getting founded or funded. And one of the conversations always we have chosen thus far to be really the six general partners. Uh, we have, you know, Blake, who is incredible as a principal. I think we've had maybe five of five Blakes and benchmarks, you know, 20 years, 20, yeah, 25 plus year history. And so, you know, the paranoia that I certainly have all the time is there is going to be that founder whom mistakes our lack of outreach for a lack of interest. Yeah. We are constrained by the fact that we have six people. And other firms have dozens of people who are reaching out to seed funds, you know, talk, like cold calling the founders. And so the found, you know, it's very easy for a founder then to kind of look at their inbox and decide whom they're going to raise from based on their inbox. Yeah. Um, I actually had a funny experience with a, a friend of mine who's a YC uh, founder, and he was telling me, he's like, my process, you know, it's just not moving that well. And I was like, well, tell me who you're talking to. This was like yeah. pre-revenue company. And I looked at his list, and it was all these like multi-stage venture firms who had reached out to him. I'm like, oh my God, like, yeah. it's like, it's a wrong signal, but a lot of people make that mistake. And so, you know, there is a corresponding, you know, the trade-off, of course, to having more people at Benchmark besides the GPs. One of the biggest ones is just, does it end up atomizing our attention right. away from the collaboration that we have with each other? And there are many, many other things to, to think about, but that is certainly when, when you ask me where I'm most paranoid, yeah. I want to make sure I'm seeing the best companies that I can possibly see getting to meet those founders. Yeah. People tell stories about us, you know, oh, totally. you, they, you know, they move whatever. They're going to yeah. want a lower price or they're going to want, they're going to be slow or whatever. Like, you know, people tell these stories. They only say yes once or twice. Yeah. Don't, you know, whatever it is. 
we need to work against that all the time yeah. to meet those founders. And other firms have developed machinery around it that we don't have. Totally. And that's that's a trade-off. And it's interesting because yeah, if you if you, in a competitive market, you don't want to be no one wants to be like a worse version of of other firms playing their game. You want to play your game to, yes. to the max. 100%. And so yeah, you could have a little bit of platform team, but these firms have massive. So you never, yes. no one's ever going to compete on that level. But what they're not going to compete with with you on is GP time and attention and, and focus. And so maximizing that. Yeah, it's yeah. a great like you know one of the trade offs is like when you know we cold email cold DM people all the time, right? Yeah. And or you know do yeah. uh, the kind of the first call that is us reaching out. There's no yeah. army of people yeah, yeah. who totally. are doing it. It it is us and that and like there's no person when we engage with a company there's no person to whom I say oh like reach out to the you know yeah. these other companies or do these diligence calls or go through the spreadsheet if there's a spreadsheet there rarely is yeah but that's us and again we think that leads to a better experience for the founder it leads to better decisions by us but it you know there are trade offs to everything yeah benchmark does the work. That's a great place to, to wrap. Uh, Eric and Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. For Thank you us. for having us. Yeah. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.